Hello and welcome back to episode 8 of The Hard Yards. Thank you very much for joining me and obviously if you are listening in to episode 8 you must be loving or enjoying at least some of what we're chatting about with some of Australia and New Zealand's elite superstar sporting athletes. We've got a stellar month ahead of us in the month of June so don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you don't ever miss an episode and some big names in Australian sport are coming your way over the month of June. So let's get stuck into it. Here we go with episode eight. Well, a massive hello and thank you for joining us for episode eight of The Hard Yards. Today I am joined by a mate who I haven't seen for quite a while, so it's great to see his face on the Zoom catch up as we continue to catch up over Zoom, given that uh, COVID-19 has changed the world that we live in. And he's uh, catching up to me from a very chilly-looking St Kilda down in Melbourne. Mel Michael, three-time premiership winner with the mighty Brisbane Lions, my favourite Brisbane Lions, uh, is joining me all the way from that very chilly St Kilda. How are you, Mel? I'm really well, G, and it's great to be part of the program and thanks for inviting me on. Oh, mate, you, uh, you are an integral part of that time of uh, not only uh, footy life, but my life. Uh, we've got a, a mutual friend, Cameron Singer, who uh, you went through, I think you went through school with him from possibly even preschool, did you, all the way through to end of grade 12? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the S-man. Um, <laughs> we had some great times together and, uh, yeah, he was the one that introduced us together and I'm actually just realising right now that your name is Matt. I've always just known you as... The G, <laughs> you know, G-Force, G-Train. Um, you're a bit like Buddy Franklin or Shooter McGavin. Like, they actually have, <laughs> they actually have real names. <laughs> God, there you go. There you go. Oh, well, sorry to disappoint you, mate. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, and, and I can tell you, we had... Um, I think we probably met through Cameron, but we met probably on a golf course, which most of my guests have, have I've played golf with or spent time playing golf with. And I can tell you what, Mel Michael, as far as he can punch an AFL ball coming into the attacking forward 50, he can also hit a golf ball that far out of bounds, I think. That's probably <laughs> the best way to describe it. I'm good for uh, the golf ball producing companies. They love me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it was good times and, and certainly an enjoyable um, time of your life, no doubt, looking back on it, Mel, when you were back up in Brisbane and, and winning premierships. But we'll touch on that a bit later on. Um, just going back to that, just yes. getting back to that, that day at Gales when we actually had a hit together. Our mutual friend Cameron Singer said, um, we're going to go have a hit. i got a friend coming along. Do you mind if he plays? And I said, yeah, no worries. And he goes, oh, by the way, he, he can play a bit. And I said, okay, yeah, no worries. As long as he's okay with us. That must have been the most frustrating day for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, – oh, look, I, I'm a big believer, Mel, in that, you know, I love golf and, and anyone who knows me knows that and you know that about me and – and certainly for me, any day that I'm out on the golf course is, is fun. And, you know, that's the beauty of golf, I think, as well. So even though we might have been playing together, I'm still doing my own thing with my own golf ball and trying to shoot as low a score as I can. And, you know, that I always look at, you know, playing golf with mates. Um, we're always going to have a few laughs out there. There's no doubt about that. And we did. Um, and certainly Cameron brings plenty of those around as well. But, um you know, I always try to, you know, help people. Um, some people are unhelpable, um, but we'll we'll talk about that at another time. But, uh, you know, I love, I love it, mate. I, it doesn't matter who I'm playing golf with. I just enjoy it. And if I can help them to enjoy the game that I love a little bit more, it's always good fun anyway. So, um, you know, probably the same in reverse. If we went to kick a footy around, that would drive you insane. But um, Cameron can't kick it straight and there's only two of us in the triangle can kick it straight. So, um <laughs> You can add I'm me to that. You can add me to that unhelpable list. I won't be offended. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that, Mel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now let's um, let's rewind the tape to uh, when Mel Michael was because um, you're quite a cult figure, I believe, in Papua New Guinea. So you were born in New Guinea um, and moved over to Australia when you were about three or four, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in 1980 we moved over. Moved over in 98. So your mum was Papua New Guinean, but your dad was Australian. Is that right? That's correct. 
And do you remember much of, you know, I mean, it's hard to think back. I, I struggle to think back to my early years at that age, but do you remember much of New Guinea from then or is it more just the times you've been going back over the years? I only have one recollection of when I left um, New Guinea and that was, and it's only one memory I have, um, but that was, we're at my grandmother's place and we had, there was a family gathering and the kids all congregated and then decided to go at the back of the property and then up into the school that was behind the, um, behind my grandmother's house and we're all mucking around in the school and our parents then came out to see where we were, couldn't find us. <laughs> and then literally, you know, went nuts. And then I just remember all of us just being lined up and cop copying a, <laughs> a good old fashioned bout of discipline. <laughs> That's probably why I remember it. <laughs> We had a bit of cane that um, every now and then would find its way around the back of my thighs and just give me a little hurry up to say, hey, Matty G, time to, uh, time to behave. <laughs> what about New Guinea, mate? Was it, was it a piece, big piece of bamboo or something that came across the, the legs or the hand? We had the old-fashioned village justice where, and my <laughs> mum was, was readily available to hand it out. But her, her weapon of choice, and she hates me saying this because I always tell my friends about it, um, <laughs> She used to get the garden hose and cut probably a metre off the end and it, it makes it, it into a, a fantastic whacking device. And, yeah, she'd just grab you by, the, you know, by your shirt on the back of your shoulders and just give you a few lashes on the back of the thighs. And you learnt very quickly that what you did, you never do it again. I might sound like a bit of a sadist here, but I actually thank my mother for doing that because... I agree, 100%. I, ne I needed that discipline as a kid to just... You know, I had to learn that what I was doing was wrong. Um, and I knew that the consequences of what I was doing would end up with that. So I, I didn't want that. So, yes, you probably yeah, I agree. Me. And we don't tend to talk about it anymore because people get a bit funny about it. But, yeah, they do. Um, a bit of discipline's good. But yeah, children. no. Couldn't agree more. So you you, uh, you jumped on the on the plane, I assume, and ended up in Brisbane. And uh, as we ch chatted on, touched on just before, um, spent your whole school life in Brisbane, is that right? Yeah, the old man got transferred to Brisbane as part of the, the Brisbane Domestic Airport Consortium that won the tender. Um, so we arrived in 1980, it was a six-year project and it was completed in 1986 when it reopened. And then in 1986, we were deciding, what do we do? Do we go back to New Guinea or what were the options? But by then, we'd all started school and were, were in school. So all my three sisters were all in school by this stage and me. Um, so they made a decision just to stay in Brisbane. Okay. And uh, not a bad place to, to grow up. You spent a bit of time um, playing a multitude of sports. And I wouldn't mind just um, chatting through this a little bit now. So, you know, you're quite the talented sportsman from, from what I hear. So um, run me through some of those sports, I, I, I believe, Water polo, basketball, swimming, AFL, was there anything I've missed? Oh, look, I think my parents, they gave me a real buffet of um, choices with sport. Um, I, I don't know, maybe I was one of those kids that was probably coordinated and most of the things that I tried, um, if I ever went along with some friends and tried something, I was, I was okay at it. Yeah. Um, and then I could just pursue it a little bit further. Um, but definitely the... The big three were the water polo, AFL, or Australian rules, and basketball. I, I represented Queensland in all three disciplines. Um, and then I got to about 16, 17, and I had to decide which one I was going to pursue more seriously. How does, how does a 15, 16-year-old who's made Queensland teams and all of those things, um, how do you make those sorts of decisions, Mel? Who was was it chatting with your parents? Was it talking to coaches? Was it looking at potential, you know, careers that you can make out of those three disciplines? Or how'd you go about that? Well, bizarrely, if we just go back a a, a little bit, um, sure. Australian rules was probably the the third of the sports that yeah, wow. that, I was, that I was good at. Um, um, by far, water polo I was um, the best at, um, and then basketball and footy, but um, I think you just answered the question before. It, I looked at um, what was the the benefits that either, that each sport could provide myself, 
as a pathway going forward into, say, a young adult life. And I think at the time, basketball was was in a bit of a crisis. Yeah, right. Um, water polo was was pretty much something you just you, you played um, as a hobby, um, even though it's an Olympic sport. Um, and football just ticked more of the boxes. So I, I decided sure. to, to go with footy. And from a basketball perspective, are we talking about the era um, probably a little bit after the, the real sort of Brisbane Bullets, Leroy Loggins, Cal Bruton type of era? It was a bit after that, was it, maybe? Or Yeah, it was after that. So it, basketball went through a re- renaissance period with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan in the early 90s. And then it just kind of dropped off after that, um, unfortunately, because even the NBL was... Um, was a benefactor of, of a lot of good players yeah, coming sure. out. And, um, and actually, if you look at the Boomers team now, the Australian men's Olympic team, there's a lot of sons of fathers who came out in the 80s and 90s who were playing. So Australian basketball is, is a beneficiary of that today. Yeah, wow. But, but unfortunately, it fell on some hard times and um, the future didn't look great. So uh, my decision to play football um, kind of really made its, its own decision. In the end, okay. With with that, so you've decided that AFL is probably the pathway for you out of those three sports. Let's talk about um, you know that's and that's obviously really uh, a really good chat for you know listeners out there who might be really talented. And there's a lot of people out there who are super talented. And like you said about yourself earlier, you, you know you had this hand-eye coordination, you had this um, natural sporting ability to be able to pick up most sports and run with them. Um, and there's lots of kids out there like that. So making those decisions and, and trying to figure out where to go is one thing. What does it look like as a 16-year-old whose pathway is looking like AFL and heading down that road as far as what what you did at school, school work-wise, um, and how has that held you post-football career? Well, to to answer that very shortly, I probably didn't spend enough time on my schooling in that period. And I know times have changed dramatically now where young athletes are encouraged or they're actually forced to do their, their schooling before sport. Yeah. Um, I probably spent far too much time of my spare time with sport. Um, and I didn't probably dedicate enough time to my studies as I should have. And any lingering effects of that now, now that you're out of the footballing career, playing career anyway, um, you know, as far as what Mel Michael's doing in life now, is, is there a lingering effect from that? Not really, no. no. Um, I would have liked to have probably... Um, finish some some kind of tertiary education, mm-hmm. um, but with my current employment now, it's it and it kind of embarrasses me to say this, but it really has come off the back of my footballing profile that I made over you know fourteen seasons. So um, I'm pretty lucky from that regard. Like footy's opened up a lot of doors that if I hadn't have played football, I never would have. Um, yeah, sure. So it's, I've been pretty fortunate like that. And and just touch on what that is for you now, Mel. So what are you doing these days? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in the agriculture sector um, and I do most of my work in Papua New Guinea. Okay. And, and my job title is an acquisitions manager. So for the company I work for, I go and acquire resource and agriculture projects on behalf of the company. Yeah, right. So I spend a fair chunk of time overseas. Um, so I'll be gone 30, 60 days at a time, come back, report to my board, and then I'll have to go back over and, and um, be part of the operations team back in New Guinea. But I spend a lot of time, even though I say I'm in agriculture, I don't spend as much time on field, um, sure. in plantations. I'm, I'm probably more in the, in the meeting rooms uh, doing all that kind of really interesting stuff, uh, convincing governors and heads of state to to partner with us in certain programs. Could you have possibly imagined this is where you'd be <laughs> when you think back to being at St Peter's as a 16-year-old, <laughs> running around making a decision as to water polo, basketball or AFL, that, 
that you'd be sitting in boardrooms trying to, to help acquire, you know, properties and equipment to, you know, to do things on a, in another country. Absolutely not. I um, Although at the, at the end of my Brisbane career, I, I started to go in that direction. So the, okay. the, seed, the seed was planted and I started moving in that direction anyway. But um, to answer your question, in, in high school, I mean, to, to be honest with you, who knows what they want to do in high school Absolutely. anyway? <laughs> did, you, did you know? Uh, I wanted, yeah, by the time I moved into grade 11, I wanted to be a pro golfer. And that was what I spent all my time and effort to do. Um, and like you, I've been just absolutely blessed, Mel, to, to have been able to chase that dream and chase that little white ball around and do something that I've absolutely loved for as long as I've done it so far. And, and the beauty of my sport is that I can, you know, kick on and either keep playing if I wanted to, but now moving into the coaching realm, uh, it allows me to still stay connected to a sport that I love. Are you still connected with AFL at the moment as well, Mel? I'd love to be, but um, I uh, post AFL, I, I played for a little bit and then I coached. And then um, I was coaching Melbourne Metro football and it's a really high standard, um, but you need to dedicate 25 hours a week to do yeah. that. Um, my board said to me, you have to kind of make a decision here. Do you want to yeah. go down that or do you want to continue with us and I just I had to make the decision to stay with work so unfortunately I've had to step away from football but I've got a young son and he's really keen at it um, but by stepping away it also allows me time to go and watch him play yeah um, and you know just spend some spend some more time with him and I'm assuming with COVID that's meant you've had to spend a bit more time here there's no travel up to, um, to Papua New Guinea at the moment I imagine yeah, it's all cancelled. Um, I came back just before it all, you know, just before it all hit the fan. So I was lucky I didn't have to do any isolation. Um, but for me to go back right now, I'd have to spend 14 days in a hotel up there and um, it's just too long. <laughs> it's, it's, it's half a month. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go back to, let's rewind the tape. We've sort of skipped around a bit here and that's what I love about podcasts is that we can just float wherever we want to and talk about, you know, uh, whatever topics come up along the way. So let's rewind the tape for Mel Michael now to, um, you know, back to sort of when you're 15, 16. I'm assuming at that point you started to have some discussions with clubs, uh, AFL clubs. Um, talk us through that process of being, being a young Queensland AFL player. You've made that decision, and how does it work? How does it? How does it actually transpire for Mel Michael from that stage to um, get yourself drafted? Well, it's it's completely different now to what it was when I went through the system. Um, the, the when I was, it's more when you're 17, you start attracting club, um, interest from clubs. Um, mm. They have a they used to have a national tournament called the Teal Cup, and that was for all the 17-year-olds throughout the country, and I was representing wow. Queensland. We went to Perth, played in the tournament there. I actually had a pretty ordinary tournament, to be honest. Um, there probably wouldn't have been many selectors thinking that they would, were going to draft me at that point. Um, I was playing state footy for Morningside Footy Club in the, okay. the then state league, the QAFL. Yep. And my, fo my form there was pretty good. Um, but um, at that time... Uh, local Queensland footballers could be automatically signed to the Brisbane Bears, as they were known mm -hmm. back then. They actually didn't have to go through a drafting process. It was called a, it was like a priority zone selection. So if some of our listeners can remember some of the past players like Jason Ackermanis, Clark Keating, yep. uh, Steve Lawrence, all these local Queensland players, they didn't actually have to draft them. They could just take them and sign them as local players. And, and I, I was in that category. Um, but probably because I had a pretty poor Teal Cup tournament, I didn't get selected by Brisbane, although I was invited to do the summer training with them. Um, so I did that. And then I went into the 1995 season with Morningside again as an 18-year-old. And I actually had a pretty good season that year. And I just remember AFL clubs were, were coming up and they were sending their camera crew up and they were sitting yeah, up right. on top of the top of the clubhouse and they were filming the games. Yeah. And and my 
coach at the time, Marty King, he, he didn't want to put any pressure on me, but um, I think we got to about around 10 or 11 and he said, mate, you want to play well today. He goes, you want to play well today. <laughs> and I Why is that, didn't know Why is that Marty? Why is that? <laughs> we got out there and I saw the cameraman on top of the, the roof, which we never had cameramen. Um, I'd never seen them before until that year and then it still started all making sense. And your dream, I imagine, would have been to be drafted into the Bears, but didn't end up that way. No, I was really, I was shattered actually. I, I was just, you know, the one thing I always wanted to do was go to the Gabba. Yeah. A, open up, you know, the old football records they used to have, they don't kind of have yeah. them anymore. Yeah. Um, and then they used to have the team list, just say we were playing Essendon, you'd have all the Essendon players where they were yeah. from. And all the Brisbane players. And I just wanted to see my name in there. And it would say Mount Michael from Morningside and Kenmore Juniors. That's all I wanted to see. And then when I didn't get that, I thought, oh, that was very disappointing. And I thought, well, I can, um, I can finish the season off with Morningside. And I did. And I, um, I did okay. Um, and then I started to get a few offers coming in from Victorian clubs. But I genuinely thought that I'd get another go at Brisbane, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So Collingwood, good old Collingwood forever, picked you up. And what's that like? What's that Collingwood bubble for someone who's, you know, Brisbane fanatical, Brisbane fan, and, you know, we're obviously still very much pro rugby league state, um, Mm. despite the the Brisbane Lions doing phenomenally well. What's it like going from Brisbane down to Melbourne and moving into this Collingwood bubble for Mel Michael when you were shattered in your words that you didn't get picked up for Brisbane? I was stoked to firstly be given the opportunity and especially a club like Collingwood. Um, the The football side I was really happy with. Um, I, yeah. couldn't probably, I couldn't have been any happier going to a club like Collingwood. Um, just the outside of football situation was just horrendous. And that's just the having no support system, no social network, um, having no income. Um, It was really difficult. It was really tough. Um, Sorry, Mel, just talk us through that no income part there because, you know, um, listeners are probably thinking, hang on a second, you've been drafted into Collingwood. What's the story with no income? Well, Again, the things are a lot different back then, but um, now they tend to have players on fixed salaries, whereas you used to go down there as a young 18-year-old, as I did, and you get almost pretty much paid to play. So if you weren't, right. play, if you weren't playing, you weren't getting paid. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's, as simple, it's as simple as that. And if you weren't happy with that, there was a 1,000 guys behind you willing, ready yeah. and willing to take your place. So... Um, I thought, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. Went down and I did it. Um, I was studying uh, my first year of my electrical apprenticeship. I was playing footy and um, I was working in my spare times washing cars for one of the sponsors of the club. But, you know, at the end of each month, I just could not afford to pay my rent. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I had no food, nothing. It was just crazy. <laughs> How are you supposed to perform? <laughs> How are you supposed to perform when you've got no food in the belly, Mel Michael? Yeah. It was insane, I tell you. And um, un- unfortunately for the young players of today, that they don't have to worry about any of this because they get they get looked after very well. Um, but I remember my mum coming down. She used to come down once a year while I lived in Melbourne, and she just she basically just burst into tears. She goes, "Oh my god!" She goes, "I knew it was bad, but I didn't realise it was this bad." <laughs> There's just no food in the house, um, you know. Yeah, and it's just the it's just the absolute determination for you to want to play AFL at that point that just gets you through week to week and month to month. Well, the thing was on the footy field, I was doing okay. I yeah. was I was playing good footy. Um, I was just waiting for my opportunity. It was just the off field that was that was really um, hard. It was hard. Look, I, I growing up in Brisbane, had a great childhood there. Mm. All my school friends still there. Um. And then you just go to this foreign place. There's a there's a song by Paul Simon called The Boxer and he talks about when he he goes to some foreign city and um, he's just trying to make his way and it's and it's really hard, but he eventually does it. 
and that's probably the best analogy I can make. But yeah, cool. There, there was one time, and it was it was when there used to be. I actually was part of the reserves competition. They don't tend to have it anymore, but um, we had to play Sydney in Sydney, and our coach of the of the Collingwood reserves was Danny Frawley. And oh, yeah. He, and he said to the team, right, I want everyone to meet at this restaurant. It was called Don Camillo's and um, it was 10 bucks basically. And then from there we go to the airport and then fly to Sydney, play Sydney, then come home. Anyway, I called Danny and I said, look, I'm going to have to meet you at the airport. Um, I probably, I just probably made up some excuse that I was working or I was just coming home from somewhere. But in reality, I actually couldn't afford the $10 wow. to, pay, to pay for the dinner. That's how bad it was. So I met him at the airport. I basically ate whatever they provided. I drank whatever they provided, played, and actually played a really good game. Jumped on the plane, came home, and then had to rely on someone to give me a lift home because <laughs> I couldn't afford a taxi. <laughs> oh, it's unreal. I just love hearing this so now. This is exactly, all the, you know, when you think about the name of this podcast, The Hard Yards, that is it right there. You are doing The Hard Yards, trying to make it. Um, as a young fella living in Melbourne, in the biggest club in Melbourne, um, and you haven't got ten bucks to to get yourself some pasta before you get on a plane to Sydney. That's unbelievable. So where did it turn? You got you were you were one of the very few. Uh, let me get this. I, I let you get it right. Um, you came up from the rookie list. You're the youngest, maybe ever, to come up from the rookie list or something along those lines. Now, I think it was just the first. First, okay. The first. But um, I actually, at the end of that season, the 1996 season, I um, went and saw Tony Shaw, who was our coach, and I told him I was going home. Yeah, um, right. And I Back said, to Brisbane. Yeah, I said, thank you for the opportunity, but I'm, I'm going to head home because I just I couldn't go through another season of, of that. Like 12 months was, was hard. Um, and, I, and I tell people today, it was the hardest 12 months that I've ever done in my life. Yeah, wow. Just, just trying to survive. So and and he was like like he he was a senior coach. So unless I was playing seniors, he you know it's like oh yeah. well yeah, yeah. Okay, okay mate no worries we'll we'll just pick up the next kid after you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was fine. But anyway, I was I was doing some weights in that off season um, while I was sort of packing all my stuff up and and then Nathan Buckley came into the weights room. And he said to me, um, he goes, are you going to the Copeland Trophy tonight, which was their best and fairest night? And I said, no, I actually, I'm not going. I, I haven't been invited. And he goes, what? And he goes, um, he goes, wait here. I'll be back. And he, he must have gone into the club's <laughs> admin side and he's come back and he goes, here's two tickets. I'll see you tonight. And he goes, make sure you go. So I went along. I thought that was fantastic. You know, this club legend, even though he was, he was young, he was he actually went out of his way to, to get me to the Copeland Trophy. That was pretty cool. And I went along and then um, I still was thinking I'm still going to go home though. Yeah. <laughs> so I came, actually came home to, to Brisbane and I saw my old coach at Morningside, Marty King, and I said, look, I'm thinking of coming back. Will you have me? And he goes, of course I'll have you, but you have to understand if you come back, that's it. There's no more second chances. So um, you need to make How old were you at this stage, Mel? I was 19. 19, yeah. Yeah. So I had my first year at Collingwood and then I was coming back. And then um, and I told my mum, I said, do you mind if I move back home? And she goes, yeah, that's fine. You can move back home. Um, and then I don't know how he did it, but um, Marty King managed to convince me to give it one more go and I did. And then I went back for my second year there and I got to about round seven and I thought, you know what? I can't believe they convinced me to do it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. So I called up Tony Shaw. And, and mind you, at this, at this point in my second year, I was playing some really good football Yeah, uh, in the reserves. Um, were you, were I, you still playing? Were you playing in the back line? Did you play in the back line your whole career, Mel? Yeah, pretty much. I was playing yeah. fullback. And yeah. I was really lucky because our, our reserves coach was Danny Frawley and he was a champion fullback. So... Mm. Um, I was pretty fortunate. I went to a club where I was mentored by a, a genuine champion who played my position. Sure. But, um, yeah, so I called Tony and I said, look, Tony, I'm, I'm, I need to come and see you. And he goes, yeah, sure. How does Wednesday sound? And I said, perfect, lock it in. So 
Anyway, I turned up on the Wednesday basically to tell Tony Shaw, the, the coach, that I was going to finish up and he should hear it from me rather than me just sending sure. him a message while I'm, you know, at the back door. So he sat down and, and in the meeting he asked me how I thought my form was and I said, you know, I think it's pretty good. Um, um, there's still a lot of things I can work on. And, and he basically said, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, he goes, we all think you're, you're doing really well. And, um, and I'm glad that you actually um, made, a, made the call to come see me because we're actually going to play this week, this weekend. Um, so you're going, to be making, you're going to be making your debut. And I went, oh, okay. And he goes, oh, that's not the response I usually get from when I'm, when I tell players they're going to be playing the first game. <laughs> and he goes, anyway, what did you want to say? <laughs> and I said... Yeah, oh, I look forward to playing on the weekend. <laughs> that's it. That's what I said. <laughs> and I said, I, I probably should call my mum and tell her. And he goes, we've already done that. She's actually... We've already organised her to, to be down here on Friday. She'll be down tomorrow. So it was, it was almost like a sliding doors moment. And I say that yeah. in all sincerity because if I had met him on Tuesday, I, I may not have ever played. Who knows? Wow. Um, or, if, or if I spoke first. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> hey, can I go first, Tony? Um, I'm leaving. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I wonder if he still would have um, said, hey, before you leave, is there any chance you can just play one game for us in the, in the big boys team this weekend and, and, uh, and see what would have happened? But... Um, Wow, it's incredible how the water flows under the bridge and 238 games later, mm. um, or 37 games later, or, yeah, you played 238, um, an incredible career that um, almost didn't happen. Um, yeah, that's just awesome, isn't it? And, and you never went back from there, did you? I, I don't think you ever sort of went back from that rookie elevation back down. You played the rest of that season, I think, did you not? Other than some injuries, maybe. No, I I played two games. My first my first game on debut against was against North Melbourne, who were the reigning premier. Right. Uh, and it was Friday night footy, so it was a big big night. There was over seventy thousand people there. Yeah. Is that, um, that sort was, of Wayne Carey still playing? Yeah, that was that premiership team. Wayne Carey. Yeah, right. Corey McKern and all those guys. So um, that was a great initiation. <laughs> um, I played all right actually, and then. The next week, I didn't have a great game, and then I I went back to the reserves for right. for one or two games, and then I came back, and then I played the rest of the season in the seniors because yeah, sure. I started to show a lot of natural improvement at, at the senior level. For the young guys out there, Mel, uh, who are listening in, um, playing AFL at the 16s, 17s, 18s level at the moment, or playing in the top level here in Queensland or around the country. What's it like? What's the difference from from where you were playing and AFL level back then? You know, what's the difference? You know, when you get out there, oh, it's just it's so cutthroat. That's probably the the best way I can explain it. Um, when I was playing in Brisbane as a junior, we might have had say three or four good players in our team, and then the rest were okay. And then there yeah. was a couple, a couple at the bottom that were pretty much just playing for a bit of exercise. But once you get to, say, the state league, it's it's a huge jump. So pretty much everyone can play. And then once you get to the AFL level or the AFL system, um, not only can they play, but they're very determined. So by that stage, all the, the vetting process has been done. If you yeah. would, only the best survive. Um, yeah, and every opponent you're playing is a good footballer. That's that's probably the, the best way I can explain it. Um, there's just no easy weeks. Everyone's good. It's re- it's really hard. And talk about the challenges of that. So everyone's good. And let's talk about this from a, a career perspective, not just, you know, in your rookie time at, at Collingwood. But everyone's good. So you're a defender. You're playing on you know, arguably they're number one or number two attacking um, full forward or, or forward week to week. How tough is that as a defender to have to learn and understand about the different ways that forwards played, played the game? It was, it was pretty hard, to be honest with you. Um, if you can imagine 
well, now, how many teams are there? 18? Yeah. 18 teams? So 18 teams. So basically there's 36 key forwards in the country. Um, so that's two per team. So I had to play on, you know, 36 of the best key forwards in the country yeah. or in the game. Yeah. So that's, that's how, that's what I tell the people and they, oh, okay. And then it, it's, they see it in a whole different context. Um, but it, it was very difficult. Each forward is completely unique. Um, there's a lot of analysis. Uh, so video one, analysis? Video yeah. analysis with coaches and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So just to give you an example, one of my long-time t- long nemesis, Matthew Lloyd, that played at Essendon, um, I'd sit with my defensive coach, Gary O'Donnell, and he would, he would bring out the, like the forward 50 hotspot and it would say, this is where Matthew leads most of the times. This is where he kicks all his goals. This is where he marks most of his, um, his ball on lead. So I would have to then try and guard that on match day. Um, and sometimes it'd be quite unnatural for me to be standing in certain positions, but that's, I knew I had to stand there because that's where he wanted to lead to. Yeah, sure. and, then, and then the following week, I'd have to change it for Barry Hall. And then the following week, I'd have to change it for say, Fraser <laughs> Gehrig, Tony Lockett, uh, Chris Grant, you know, Matthew Rich. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> Great era. There was never an easy game. Tony Modra, Jason Dunstan. Yeah, wow. You know. Did you have one that you, you found the hardest? Who was the hardest matchup in that bunch of names that you're talking about there? Matthew Lloyd, you've mentioned, but was he the hardest? Or? Um. The, the problem with Lloyd was he was so devastating. He, like he, you could keep him to, let's say, four possessions to three-quarter time. And then in the last quarter, he'd have four kicks. For four, four goals. <laughs> and, then it, and then it actually looks like he's had a good day and it makes you look like you've had a bit of a poor day. So he, was, he would always play the 120-minute game, whereas some other forwards I played on, say Brendan Favola, if he got on top of him early... Um, he tended, he didn't tend to really come back from that. So, um, it wasn't too bad, but there were forwards like Matthew Lord or David Neitz from Melbourne that they just needed a couple of opportunities and then they were back in the game. But the, mm. probably the, the best forward I played on was Tony Lockett without question. Um, he had all the attributes of being a great forward and it, he's the reason why he's, he's kicked the most goals in AFL history. Sure. But he had explosive pace like you wouldn't believe. So if you For a big to play, guy too, right? Yeah, so most, most players like me who were, who were underweight, um, we wanted to play behind him because you didn't want to wrestle the guy because he'd just ragdoll you and chuck you out of the way and mark it. So you'd play behind him, but then he'd, he'd take just off. take off. So he'd get you on the lead. So then, okay, oh, maybe I should play in front of him. But if you did that, it was all over. If they kicked it in the air because he'd just hold you under it and mark it. And the other thing about Tony, he was he was just a dead eye dick. Um, yeah. If you look at his statistics over his career, like he may have only had nine possessions for the game, but he kicked eight goals one. Yeah. And that was it. Best on ground. So yeah, yeah, he was tough. Not so fun for the defender who's marking him week after week. No, I was pr- I was pretty happy when he retired. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple of questions that. Jump into mine, talk, listen to you talk about that, and I love it. Um, I could sit here all night and listen to it. But uh, a couple of the questions. One is, how do you view the game nowadays? So let's imagine that we could take Mel Michael in his prime and throw him into the current AFL game that you see on TV and you watch. Uh, does Mel Michael survive? I, I would survive more now than what I did when I played. Yeah, okay. Um, I'd love, I'd love it if there was 18 of my teammates in my defensive 50 protecting it. <laughs> for me. That's true. That's true. I mean, so the it, flood. It is so congested now that um, you rarely see a forward and a defender having genuine one-on-one contests. You, just, you yeah, really just sure. don't see it anymore. So, yeah, I, I would have loved it. Um, I would have just been the, the back end of whatever the wave was going up and down the ground. So um, I much prefer my era. Okay. Um, I don't like the the substitution rule. I think it keeps too many players fresh. Yeah. Which which allows the flooding. I think there yeah. needs to be fatigue in our game, which opens up the game, which it used to do 
10 minutes into the third quarter, hence why they called it the Premiership quarter. It's interesting how the NRLs, you know, just started up again last weekend and they've come back with rule changes to do exactly that, to keep the game going, uh, to fatigue the big players, allow the, the, the fit, young, fast guys to yeah. then break games open uh, at the back end. So what was the substitution situation when you were playing now? If you can just re- refresh our listeners for what it was like. It, it was actually no different to what it is now, but they just never used to substitute players as, as regularly. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so they come off every four minutes now, basically. So players can gut run for four minutes, come off for basically yeah. a few minutes, and then back on. And you can sustain that over 120 minutes. Um, and sports science has shown that that, that can happen. Sure. I would, I would love to go to more of a, yeah, let's say an NRL or even a soccer-style scenario where if you come off for the quarter, you're off for the quarter. Yeah. And then you can't come back on. And then it would be fun. But you could go back on in the second quarter. Correct, you could. But you can only make four changes. Once you're off, you're off. That's it. That is awesome. Yeah. And then the game would open up. It'd be great to watch. Um, Players would fatigue. And then you just get that nice open style footy where players would get it to the centre and just kick it to the full forward. And you'd have this genuine one-on-one contest. And And I used to love it. I must admit, you know, obviously, you know, you know, you know how big a Brisbane Lions fan I am. So um, I used to love it when the ball would come into the forward fifty and up would go Mel Michael with the big fist and send the ball about thirty rows back into the <laughs> into the grandstand off the fist. And I often used to think because I I haven't played much footy, you know, played a couple of seasons in the QAFL when I'd given golf the flick early in the two thousands and and um, and actually had one game at the Gabba um, myself <laughs> playing for the mighty Sherwood Magpies. Um, but the Sharon ball, which a lot of people might not realise this, Mel, but it's like a almost a brand new one. It's kind of like a rock, isn't it? It's so firm and so hard when you get that brand new Sharon. Is that correct? Yeah, they're pretty hard. Um, sometimes they, they punch them up too, well, pump them up too. Too much with the air, which, um, yeah, you're right. They just turn into these bricks. And on a wet day, my goodness, it almost breaks yeah. your wrist when you try and spoil it. Yeah, because they're so heavy. They gather the, the leather just gathers the moisture and they just yeah. become these incredible <laughs> bricks, as you say. But I used to watch and think, how many busted fingers must Mel Michael have when he punches the Sharon the way he does? What was that like for you? Did you play with just busted fingers your whole career? Did you not get busted fingers? Um, you know, talk us through that. Like, you, you know, am I just being soft over here as a little golfer? Or is it as bad as I think it must be? <laughs> You're being soft as a golfer. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, not all my fingers, but the majority of them are, are busted. Um, okay. So, yeah, so broken or... Compound dis- dislocations. Um, yeah, few of, them, few of them got a bit of arthritis in the knuckle region, so there's a bit of wear and tear from my playing days for sure. Did you play busted up a few times throughout your career then? So broke fingers or dislocated fingers early in matches, punching balls, and then just tape them up and off you go. I can safely say that I've, I have never missed a game through um, injured fingers. Um, wow. When I did the compound dislocation, because the bone came out of the skin and they had to put it back in, reset it, and then stitch it, I thought, and then I had to have the splint on during the week. And you didn't miss a game? Well, I thought I probably would miss that one. (laughs) But we were playing, I can't remember who we were playing, and we had a few out anyway, and I think Lepo, who was our centre-half back, he wasn't playing. And I just don't think, I mean, we were sitting in our meeting room and Lee said, he goes, Mally, you're right to play this week. And 21 other guys just turned around and looked at me. And I said, yeah, yeah, I will be right. Thinking, no, I, pro- thinking, no, I probably shouldn't play. I should let this, this finger or the skin at least heal. Um, but I ended up playing and had to have the, the plastic splint on under the glove. But it didn't seem to affect me too much. So you played with the glove on that night just to protect the hand a bit? Yeah. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. What an amazing... And- and you spoke there about Justin Lepich and 
you, you keep in touch with many of the boys over the, you know, the journey now. Um, obviously, he's still involved in the sport at Richmond, I think, um, as an assistant coach. Do you keep in touch with guys like that that you played with, um, certainly your premiership glory days, at, you know, at the Lions? I try to keep in touch with as, as much, most of them as much as I can. Um, we have a premiership reunion um, catch up, let's, let's say that, on the Thursday of grand final week, so two days before the grand final. Most of us are actually are in Melbourne anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, so you just have to play it in any of the, the three premierships and you can come along. So uh, they're great nights. Um, when, when, once the guys tend to have a few drinks, it tends to get a bit... <laughs> A bit the, stories, the stories get bigger and better every year. That's it. And then players tell <laughs> other players that they feel robbed about, you know, club best and fairest and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Did any of that stuff really matter to you, Mel? Like to you personally? Like club no. best and fairest things? Like I can't imagine so. Not really. But on the night, you, you kind of want to do well. Yeah, um, sure. But I guess when you're playing week in, week out, my my main objective was stopping their their gun full forward. So, if you have a good game and a good season, those other awards tend to take care of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Who was you? Who were the um, who were the larrikins? Who were the larrikins of those days? Um, when you think back to, if it's not yourself, um, you know the Premiership glory days. Were there any? There's usually a club larrikin. There's usually someone who's the practical joker. The there was, there was a few larrikins, to be honest with you. Leper was a, yeah, right. was a larrikin. Um, Martin Pike was a larrikin. <laughs> Chris Johnson. Even Alistair Lynch was a bit of a larrikin as well. I like Lynch. He's a good lad. Yeah. Love, loves his golf. Yeah, he's a good fella. So there was a good, there was a good feel amongst that group, and I, I think that's why not only did we have a really balanced team, but we, we, were, all, we were all pretty good internally together as well. And I, and I include Acker in, in when I say that as well. Yeah, he's copped a bit of flack over the years, hasn't he? But um, pretty integral part of that squad through that period of premiership dominance. Oh, absolutely. Um, without Acker, you know, probably... I mean, who knows what the results could have been, but um, he was pretty much injury-free throughout that period as well, so... Um, he was devastating on his day. Yeah, he's got uh, that incredible skill of both sides, both sides, snap off both sides. One of those first, one of the first players I remember as well. Mal really being getting around, getting around the body and snapping around the body in and around the goal square as much as he did. Yeah, he was great to watch, um, and and you can say whatever you want about Acker, but um, he took the profile of Aussie Rules or AFL in, in Brisbane to a new level that no one had ever seen before in those early 2000s. Um, and a lot of it was off his own boot. I spoke to Luke Hodge uh, in one of my earlier episodes and I asked him this question. I said, when the Gabba was full at the end of last year at fi- in finals footy when the Lions had made it to home final and it's a full house at the Gabba, Versus, you know, playing as he has uh, in full houses at the G. I said it, from all reports, it's pretty loud joint to play. What's your recollection of full house at the Gabba when, you know, and I know it was because I was in that crowd, um, you know, when you guys were shining and winning premierships. I know there were full houses even for regular home and home and away games. So what's your recollection of Gabba versus MGG for noise, Mel? I love the Gabba. I think it's a fantastic ground. It's it's almost boutique size, where it's not too big. Um, as much as I love playing at the MCG, when it's not full, it's not a good stadium. Yeah, right. So you need ninety thousand plus. You do, yeah. Um, otherwise, you get that reverberation of echoing sound that goes around it, and you and you'll see a fair bit of it once the footy starts up again. Yeah, and, and we saw it in round one. It just doesn't sound good. Um, but I love the Gabba. Yeah, great noise, really good noise. Um, I was watching the 
I think it might have been the round 21 game last year. It was Geelong v Brisbane. And Lincoln McCarthy took this mark. I remember to, it. <laughs> to, to put him in front. And I was watching the game down here at a pub just down the road from me. And the whole, the whole pub, it was strange because it was a Melbourne pub or a St Kilda pub where I live. Um, and you had a Geelong playing and Brisbane playing, but everyone was fixated on this because it was for top spot. Yeah. And then when Lincoln McCarthy took that mark, the whole place just erupted. So wow. I could I could only imagine what it would have been like inside the Gabba once yeah. that happened. But I was oh. I was that was the first time I'd been really genuinely excited about the AFL um, and the Brisbane Lions together. Um, there'd been some pretty lean years up there, and it was just really hard to watch. To be honest with you. To the point where I just did not like watching the old team play. Just watching some of the players make some horrendous decisions or poor skill execution. Sure. But last year, I really got back into following the Lions. And I was really excited and happy for them going into their first final series. And I, I just knew at the time when the results fell the way they did, I just did not want to play Richmond first. No. I was hoping I was hoping that West Coast had won their last game and they had got West Coast in the first week and I think that would have had a well, different then, result. Yeah. Home home prelim final. And then who knows after that. Yeah. Awesome though, wasn't it? And like you say, that just to be able to get back on the you know, to come from the lean years and it's fascinating listening to your talk. So so have you always been obviously you played for Collingwood, you played you finished your career at Essendon. And you spent all those years at Brisbane in, in the middle, um, with obviously three premierships. So does Brisbane hold the, the special place in the heart as far as the fan, Mel Michael? Yeah, oh, hundred percent. Yep. So <clears throat> it's no longer good old Collingwood forever. <laughs> it's the Brisbane Lions. I must say, I scream. I'm surprised you didn't hear me in St Kilda when I when Link McCarthy took that mark. I was <laughs> off the couch, through the roof, doing a bit of jumping in the, up and down as, as well. Here's a question for you: um, If you could play in front of a full, a full house at the Gabba versus a full house at the G, and that that was the only venue you could play at for the rest of your career, which would you choose? I'd take the G. Okay. Just because it's bigger. Yeah. Yeah. In my early days at Collingwood in the 1998 season, round two we played against Carlton. There was, oh, don't quote me, 84,000. Mm. Uh, round three we played against Richmond. Same thing, 85,000. And then the following week we had Anzac Day against Essendon. So 91,000. So, you know, <laughs> in effect, in three weeks, I've played in front of a quarter of a million people. That's unbelievable. Um, Not to mention yeah, the viewers at home. Can you hear the? Can you hear your teammates when it's that full? No, you can't. You can just hear the just players in close proximity. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So anyone, if you're in the defensive goal square, anyone who's at the, the top of the 50, you're not really being able to hear them. Oh, you, no, you you could, but it just depends on what's happening in the game. Sure. Um, do you remember the 2002 grand final against Collingwood in the wet? Yes. Yeah, so we, so the last, basically the last 10 minutes of that, it was just an arm wrestle and the, and the noise of the grand was so loud because yeah, the fans of each team knew that whoever kicked the next goal was almost going to win the, the premiership. So it was just this stirring noise for the best part of 10 minutes and you couldn't hear anything you know, wow. within 30 or 40 metres of it. And it was a low-scoring, terrible day, but goals were just like hen's teeth and the fans were just trying to get their team up to just score one more. Um, and on that day, we were lucky that Acker kicked the goal for us and gave us the win. So what's it like when, let's just talk on this for a second, I know we're talking about hard yards, which which we've talked a lot about tonight. It's been awesome. And thank you for your time, Mal. Um, and the and the journey that you've taken us on has been awesome to, to hear and, and hopefully encouraging those young elite athletes out there that, yeah, it's tough sometimes, but just pushing through saw you get to 
do what you wanted to do for so many years, um, which is brilliant. What is it like, touch on what it's like when you have won the premiership now and the journey down into the rooms and the aftermath of winning an AFL grand final? <laughs> to be if honest you can remember you, it. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. I remember it really well. Um, there, there was probably two two things. One was just the relief that it was over. Um, yeah, right. That's interesting. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, and I, and I don't say this disrespectfully, but a lot of um, people not in the AFL system always ask always ask me like, why why is that? Um, but they don't understand it. But it's it's not just a grand final. It's a it's a campaign. Um, sure. It's a 10-month campaign, and it's not just the 22 that play on Grand Final Day either. And you've got to ride every emotion, uh-huh. all the training, all the sweat for 10 months. And then eventually when that siren goes on Grand Final Day, it's, it's just a relief that there's just no more. <laughs> there's no yeah. more pressure. <laughs> the yeah. pressure has finally stopped. Um, but there's also the relief. Um, after the first one, there's also a sense of, did we actually just do that? Um, yeah. Because you always watch other people do it and you, just, you always think, oh, that'd be pretty cool. But you never think that you're going to do it. And then when you finally do it, you have to then have to get that uh, moment of reflection to say, we actually did do that, um, which was really cool. Um, but also just in the rooms afterwards, all your, your family and friends come down. Yeah. So I actually remember seeing Cam come in after the yeah. 2001. I don't think security wanted to let him in. And I said, yeah, let, let him in. He's fine. He can come in. <laughs> We've yeah. actually got security, we're really... Security had it right, I'm sure. Security were on the right track there, I think. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> we've actually got another close friend called Matt Felsch and, and he came down as well. And um, we got this really cool photo of the three of us in the rooms. Um, That's awesome. On grand final day. And... I think one of them is, I think I might be in the middle holding the, the, the trophy and the other two have got one hand on each side of the of the handle. So that was a really special moment. That is awesome, isn't it? Because, you know, we touched on it at the very start of this episode, how when you moved to Brisbane, you met Cameron as a little, you know, four-year-old at prep or something or kindergarten and you went all the way through school together, um, would have played sport together growing up. And uh, here he is, you know, years later holding the Premiership trophy with you at the, in the, the depths of the G. Um, that's pretty surreal, isn't it? You know, like when you think about it like that, that's a, that's a very cool thing. And, and all the blood, sweat and tears to get there, Mal, surely in those moments you think, oh, it's all worthwhile just for this, this special time. Well, that's it, the emotional relief. And, and that's what I was trying to say earlier, that it's not the 22 players that run out on grand final day. It's the it's the football club, their members, your other teammates yeah. that didn't get selected. You know, it's just it's such a combination of effort that goes into it. Um, that that's why there's so much relief at the end of the day when you win it because you, as much as you do want to win it for yourself, you, you're actually winning it for something much bigger. Yeah. For an enter- like you, you're winning it for the football club and attached to that football club are so many people that have only ever wanted you to do well and succeed. So you, you, you play on grand final day for a lot of people. Yeah, it's awesome. And then to be able to back it up a couple more years in a row and not far off four in a row probably. Yeah. Yeah, we were half a game from making it four, but looking back on that one against Port Adelaide, they were just clearly the better team that day. So we needed a lot to go right for us and... Um, in hindsight, if you look at it, the the right result actually happened. The yeah. the superior, fitter, younger team just ran all over the top of us, and they basically did to us what we did to Essendon in oh one. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, that's awesome, mate. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I do want to finish with one question that I ask everybody who's come on here, and. Um, and Mal, it's been brilliant chatting with you. And I'm a fanatic, as fanatical a Brisbane Lions fan as you're going to find, I'm sure. Um, I know. I, I, <laughs> yeah, 
I've actually got a shirt. You might, you may or may not remember this. Um, I think you signed three of them. So those premiers, white premiers shirts um, that sort of have the, the, it was a lion sort of caricature lion on yep. the front. And, uh, and I think you got three of them signed by the whole, by the whole team and coach um, after one of the grand finals and gave one to me, or you gave me the Cameron, I think, but, you know, I got one, Timmy Roberts got one, and, uh, and Cam Singer got the other one. <laughs> and mine still is proudly mounted in this big glass frame. Oh, um, awesome. In my house here from all those years ago, and it still looks as brand new today as it did back then. So, mate, thank you for, uh, and I think that's what you're talking about. You know, there's so many fanatical fans like me out there and, you know, um, who are riding every every quarter and every bounce of the ball throughout the whole season. And so when the grand final's all done and dusted, it's knuckleheads like me that, um, you know, that great, get great joy out of it. So, mate, uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you for the shirt all these years later. I don't even know who I'm. Thank you in person ever for that. So it's a oh, great piece pleasure. of memorabilia for me. My final question that I ask everybody uh, who comes on the podcast is if you could be another sports person for a day, whether that's a current sports superstar or uh, someone from the past, who would it be and why Mel Michael? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? So many good ones. Oh, you know, it is a really tough question, but. I'm going to say probably David Beckham. Yeah, wow. In his, um, in his heyday, you know, he was a really good-looking rooster to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> he, could, he could seriously play. Um, yeah. And the world game, um, as much as I love yeah, AFL, sure. the game I play, um, and that's why I always envy people like yourself, Matt, where you've played a world game where you're competing against the best in not just Australia, but the world. Um, and he conquered that. Um, and then he just went on to do some other stuff. At the time, I, I couldn't stand the guy. I thought it was this. Oh, I just thought, oh, God, here we go. Like, <laughs> it was a bit of a pompous, you know. Yeah, for sure. But I look, I look back on it now, and he's, he's done really well for himself and, you know, he should be proud of his efforts on and off the field and he's carried himself really well. So I'd say David Beckham, um, if I could spend 24 hours strutting my stuff looking like him, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> and you throw, you throw a game in the middle of that that the whole world is looking at. So let's say it's a, an England match at a World Cup or something where he struts his stuff and he curls a free kick over the wall into the top corner and, you know, to the raptures of the world, like you said, the world game. Uh, you throw that in the mix of your 24-hour uh, Michael morphing himself into. You have to morph yourself down into David Beckham. He's, you know, you're a much bigger character than, than David Beckham. But um, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we've had a few Tiger Woods answers. Uh, there's been lots of Tiger Woods, and uh, and then David Beckham is the first time anyone said David Beckham. So there you go. I've never admitted that before, but. Do you want me to edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> I can ask the question again. No, I'm now, kidding. That, now that I'm getting older, I don't really care anymore. So yeah, I'll say David <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being a AFL superstar. 238 games, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he was at the Collingwood Football Club. He moved to Brisbane and gained three premierships and then finished his career at Essendon and a player that is long remembered for an incredible defensive partnership with Justin Lepich and, uh, and, a, and a dominant Brisbane Lions team over a three-peat. So, Mel Michael, I'm going to leave you to your cold winter's night. <laughs> it is just winter today, so it's cold winter's night in St Kilda, mate, but it is always great catching up. In our birthday month, I never forget the fact that uh, we share the same birthday on the 24th right. of June. And, uh, and, and we message each other most years, um, which is pretty cool. So, Mel, thanks for joining me on The Hard Yards. And I wish you and your family all the very best throughout the remainder of COVID. And as trouble starts to open up, mate, safe travels back to New Guinea as you continue your career. Matty G, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks for having me. And um, I look forward to chatting soon in person.
Well, I'm sad to say it, but that's the end of episode 8 and what was an awesome chat with AFL legend and mate Mel Michael. Thanks so much for sharing some of your intimate stories, particularly how difficult it was in the rookie years at Collingwood and how you were on the verge of quitting before then going on to have an amazing 238 games and three premierships with the mighty Brisbane Lions by the end of your career. I hope that's an encouragement to everybody out there that might be close to throwing in the towel, that you never know what might be just around the corner. I do know, however, what's just around the corner on the hard yards with some exciting weeks ahead in the month of June, including tennis star Johnny Millman, our very own US Masters champion Adam Scott, and sports media personality for a different view on sport, Andy Marr. So until our next episode, stay safe and well, everyone, and get out there and give life a red-hot crack. I look forward to bringing you guest number nine next week. Catch you then.